0: Good morning, beloved. Uh, Please, if you have not done so, turn in your copy of Scripture this morning to the book of Genesis. We shall be considering chapters 44 and 45 this morning. Let us approach the throne of grace. Bow your heads with me. Holy Father, as we consider... Uh, the story that is relayed to us here in your word, we ask that you would show us Christ. Lord, you would show us of our weakness as humanity, of your greatness as God, and of your loving mercy and sacrifice of Son. Lord, draw us in close this morning. Let us behold wondrous things. Let our hearts be enlarged, convicted if necessary. But above all, Lord, may we glorify you this morning for the preaching and meditation of your word. It is in your name we pray. Amen. J.R.R. Tolkien. Some of you seem to have have heard of him. Uh, He was the prolific author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Uh, For almost 100 years or so now, his works have delighted millions of readers and audiences, for those who watch the movies. around the world with fantastical stories of elves and dwarfs and orcs and hobbits, of kings, knights, rangers, and woodsmen, of great feasts and rings that show the corruption of man's heart. His works are some of the greatest pieces of English literature, in my humble opinion, that have ever been penned, dealing with concepts such as love and grace, heroism joy, courage, and perhaps chiefly, good always triumphing over evil, no matter how dire the circumstances and no matter what evil has attempted to do. In my opinion, they're they're much more than just books that children or teenagers read in high school. But some have a different opinion. Some say that these books are simply fantasy Right, nothing more than escapism, right? Something to uh, get lost in on a uh, afternoon, lazy afternoon, uh, to just kind of run away and get away from the stresses of life through a little bit of imagination. All right? just again, just any little children's books of fan of fiction, and that may be so. Yeah, children definitely do have more of imaginations than we do, uh, and I say that more so to our shame than than to theirs. Uh, but uh, to rebut, I paused to us this morning something found uh, within the creation story of Tolkien's uh, world, right? The world of The Lord of the Rings. Uh, it was fa- it's found in uh, his prequel, The Lord of the Rings. Uh, I'm sure not many of you have heard of it or have read of it. It's called The Silmarillion. I do not recommend it uh, for most people, um, it is not a fun book per se. Uh, but uh, in that story of the Silmarillion, we see uh, the creation myth, the creation account of Tolkien's world. And in it, we see two characters uh, perhaps chiefly being represented. Okay? One that is God and one that is Satan. Okay? Tolkien is not uh, you know, creating this out of thin air. He is stealing, uh, say a nicer word, retrieving. Uh, from Christian theology, to show us uh, perhaps a, a glimpse, a, a way to consider uh, not just how the world was made, but also how evil is a part of it. The exchange found in the creation account of Tolkien's world in the Cimmerillion is uh, taken quite a bit from the biblical narrative. We see uh, the god of Tolkien's world, Iluvatar. Uh, from here on out, we're just going to call him God. Uh, and Melkor, the Satan figure. Okay, So two characters again, God and Satan. Melkor, Satan, has attempted to, to sow discord, disharmony, and chaos into God's creation. Okay, He is singing a different note that is not in, uh, if you will, the symphony that uh, God is, is singing to produce creation. Right? This beautiful, wonderful song that, that God is is. Composing and conducting and weaving and just beautifully just making music, right? We love music. But Satan is trying to sing a different tone, a different theme, a different song. And eventually, after some interactions, God tells Satan character, Melkor, And you, Melkor, shall see that no theme may be played that has not its uttermost source in me nor can anyone alter the music in my despite, against my will. For he that attempts this shall prove but to be my instrument in the devising of things more wonderful which he himself has not even imagined. In other words, no matter what the enemy attempts to do, no matter what evil he introduces in the world, it's only going to usher in evil's defeat, and ultimate goodness and glory and joy and peace, which is God's plan. And so much for our children's story. Again, that was not uh, much of it. But Tolkien's fantasy is not mere fantasy. He is pulling deeply, as I said, from Christian theology to describe the reality, specifically here, of God's ultimate providence over his creation his presiding over it, his care for it. And no matter what the enemy does, it's God's world, not his. We see this perhaps most succinctly expressed in the uh, uh, Proto-Hengelium, right? Genesis 3.15, uh, the first gospel that we, uh, Kevin often refers to us, especially here in the book of Genesis. God's decree that the serpent... That through that though evil may appear to gain a foothold on God's good design, the seed of the woman shall only be wounded, and shall ultimately destroy evil. He shall bruise your head, and you he shall bruise his heel. And this is the gospel uh, that the promise to uh, God's chosen people. Okay, that's the narrative of, of not just Genesis but of all of the biblical narrative, the entire account of Scripture, is that God is destroying evil and reconciling and restoring the world to Himself for His glory and for our joy. And this promise, this gospel that's being preserved by God's providence, we have seen again and again in our readings in Genesis and perhaps with most clarity in our Discussions and considerations of Joseph, the shepherd, the, the, the son, the favored son of Jacob. As Kevin has shown us these past few weeks, Joseph's life is one deeply imprinted with an abiding trust that God truly works all things together for good for those who are called according to his pr- purpose. We begin our journey with Joseph back in Genesis chapter 37, read for us only earlier wherein he proclaimed to have dreams of ruling over his family, right? his brothers and father bowing down to him as servants to a master. And understandably, perhaps, his brothers, in response, plotted treacherous things against him, eventually, at Judah's loving recommendation, selling him into slavery to eat the Egyptians, to just get rid of him, to, get, to just not have to worry about him ever again after all, right? Why why kill them themselves, getting blood on their hands when they can make a quick buck? I mean, he is their brother after all. Have some decency. We don't want to we'd rather him toil to death in the sun in the desert and die. We read how Joseph was thrown into jail, being falsely accused of advances on his master Potiphar's wife, how he suffered for years, locked away and forgotten in a damp and dark dungeon, and how he was freed and brought into the house of Pharaoh. To be placed at his right hand as the second most powerful man, not only in Egypt, but perhaps throughout the entire known world at that time in the um, Middle East or Near East. And then we reach the beginning of the narrative's climax, right? Joseph's brothers returned. The men that sought his destruction, plotted his assassination, eventually selling him into slavery, are now bowed before him as desperate servants seeking a handout from a, to their perspective, seemingly harsh and confusingly bipolar governor of Egypt. We've seen in the past few chapters how Joseph has tested his brothers, accusing them of being spies and liars, throwing them into jail one moment, and in the next, throwing them a feast, right? keeping them on their toes, not really sure what to expect next. Is Joseph torturing them for sick pleasure? Uh, Is he being fueled uh, by a uh, desire for vengeance? Uh, Not in the slightest. Uh, As we saw last week, Joseph is testing them uh, to uh, consider and weigh their hearts. Where are they at? Are these the same men who grabbed me and threw me into that pit? Being silent to my cries for their mercy right? Do they have, uh, you know, their their spirits, uh, their consciences, as Kevin has shown us last week, maybe have been awakened, but have they repented of their evil? It's not enough just to say, I've done wrong, right? You must also repent of it. Do they have the spirit within them that is love? Indeed, it is ultimately God through Joseph here, who's offering the final crucible to his brothers. Given the the perfect opportunity to do so and the stirring up of their jealousy, will the brothers, will Joseph's brothers betray Benjamin, the other favored son of Jacob, who is of uh, Jacob's favored wife, Rachel? Would they betray him just as they did Joseph giving him over into slavery to save their own skins. Genesis chapter 40, chapters 44 and 45 illuminate for us this morning that same truth that Tolkien was retrieving from and is, again, the same truth that is deeply abiding within not just the book, but also the world. That being the, the, that God is in the process of devising things more wonderful than we could possibly imagine because we can't imagine the way he's doing it. We see this morning here in these chapters, God's divine conversion of Joseph's formerly evil brethren. God, the divine reconciliation that God brings about through the love of Joseph for his brothers and underlying everything, perhaps even fueling everything, God's divine ordination to fulfill his promise and to preserve the people and the world that he loves. Again, that is divine conversion for those who are writing notes, divine reconciliation, and divine ordination. Firstly, the divine conversion of Joseph's formerly evil brethren. Following the grand feast, wherein Joseph blessed Benjamin over his brothers, right, giving him a better portion than his other than the others, showing obvious favor towards him we are now going to jump right into chapter 44. Before we read, right after this, verse 1, Then he commanded the steward of his house, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And the sermon did as Joseph told him. Joseph now begins the final test by framing Benjamin. Not very a good thing, but for a purpose. He is testing to see again what their response might be to uh, the situation presented before them. Right? Uh, when the servant catches up with the brothers, uh, the servant relays Joseph's accusation of thievery to them. And the brothers are indignant of their innocence. Right? They're, they're, they're completely... Uh, dead set that they have not committed such a sin against uh, a Joseph, who they don't know is Joseph. They think it's just an Egyptian governor. Right? If anything, they probably want to get as far and as quickly away from him as possible. Why would they have any connection to him or, or try to what up and they just would rather close their eyes, pretend like he never existed. And so, they go so far to boldly state that whoever is found with a silver cup will not only be put to death, but all of them that did not even commit the sin will be sold into slavery. The servant wisely reframes that. Of course, he knows where the cup is. And he tells them that whoever holds the cup will be the only one to be, uh, to be uh, produce justice against, right? to be sold into slavery. And everyone else will just return home. They can return to their father with all their belongings. So the search begins. Uh, Imagine, if you will, for a moment, the faces of the brothers as each sack of food and perishables were searched. Confidence beaming from their faces. They know none of them would steal from this reading the wind Egyptian governor. Reuben's is clear. Simeon's as well. Levi is found with nothing untoward. Judah is clean. Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, all proven innocent without a shadow of a doubt. There is no cup they're being proven right. And then, as the narrative tells us, young Joseph's sack, Benjamin's, not Joseph's, Benjamin's sack, produces something gleaming in the desert sun, that infamous silver cup. And in what must have been a moment of sheer horror, the brothers realized that their brother Benjamin would not be returning to their father as they had sworn. Knowing full well that this would not only bring perhaps the death of Benjamin, ultimately, but also the death of Jacob, the promised one, Israel. In a moment, the promises of God would be snuffed out by this one single cup. But there are no strangers to murder or to uh, selling their brethren into slavery. Because uh, again, they've done this before with Joseph, right? Lying to Jacob's face now, as well as this, uh, uh, back when they first committed the sin, and even to now, right? That Joseph died to an animal, right? Yeah, we don't know what happened to him. Other than that, the parallel being set up for uh, setting being set up here is not lost upon them, as we shall see soon. And this was not a random action either by Joseph, for he is he is. Um, Producing the situation where uh, through seeds of jealousy that he he is attempting to sow into the brothers up to this point, right? He's seeing, okay, what will they do? What are they going to do? For Benjamin was also the only other son of Rachel. He was being offered more blessings to them by this Egyptian governor who asked for him specifically to come to Egypt. And he was now the very same brother who is being accused of sin against them, right? They can rid themselves of this issue very simply by simply just permitting this to happen, right? Oh, okay, bye, Benjamin. Uh, Godspeed and all that. Uh, Hope you do well in Egypt. Uh, Try the food for me while you're there. Um, To befall the same fate as Joseph. But at this moment, something strikes the brothers. They know that they're innocent of stealing the cup. Even in this moment, they're not, you know, thinking, oh, Benjamin's, yeah, the youngest brother Benjamin again, always causing you know, mischief and being a ravenous wolf, right? They know that he did not commit the sin. They were willing to not only place his life on the line, but theirs as well. So they're, they're, they're not concerned about being innocent of this crime. But thanks to that awakened conscience that had started back in last week's readings, they realize that they are, they are not innocent of the situation being placed upon them by God. God was now actively bringing judgment upon them for the sin that they committed against Joseph. Read for us here in verse, starting in verse 13 of chapter 44. Then, after Benjamin has been revealed to be uh, with the cup, they tore their clothes, and every man... Rec- loaded their donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants behold we are my Lord's servants both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found and so Judah is, is vocalizing for the brothers exactly the thoughts of their heart this is not the Egyptian governor who is uh, caught them in their act of sin but God and they have no defense no attempt of, 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 of any hope of, of being let off the hook for the sins that they realize are being uh, uh, enacted, uh, the vengeance acted against the sins that they've produced in the past. And so they're desperately frantic at the brink of hopelessness. And yet Judah, in this frantic hopelessness, boldly approaches the governor's throne. We can envision to some extent that this is also being uh, God's throne as he pleads for mercy. Right? As Matthew mentioned for us earlier, he does not demand it, for he cannot. But he can certainly beg and plead and ask for grace. And this is Judah, the same Judah, who, who was the one who recommended selling his, Joseph into slavery, right? the same man he's now approaching. The same Judah who acted horribly against Tamar, his own daughter-in-law, wanting to burn her at the stake for immorality that he himself committed against her. He's begging for mercy. This is not going to go down the same way as it did back at Dothan, at that, at that uh, hole in the ground, right? He will not replay his sin again against Benjamin. Either Benjamin would be freed and returned to his father, or Judah would forfeit his life for the sake of Benjamin me down to verse 30. Uh, Joseph, or, uh, Judah at this point had, has produced a very long explanation of what has occurred with his brothers and with Benjamin. And he culminates his, his passionate plea by this. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant my father and the boy is not with us, then as Benjamin's life I'm sorry, uh, as Jacob's life is bound up in Benjamin's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became, speaking of himself, Judah, became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I, I alone, shall bear the blame before my father all of my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. The one who sold Joseph into slavery now offers to Joseph himself to be a slave. Kevin calls this a redemptive reversal. The, uh, you know Some may call irony. But no, this is exactly what uh, God has, is, is the, the author Moses uh, is trying to show us here. And Judah does this for love, not for selfishness, not for gain. Poetically, as one commentator remarks, the fatherly favoritism that earlier sparked brotherly hatred is now the very ground upon which Judah stands to secure Benjamin's release. The very thing that once produced evil and hatred and, and malice in Judah's heart is now the thing that is producing love and producing mercy and, and desiring self-sacrifice. Judah will substitute himself and Benjamin will go freed. And this is the moment, this moment, Final uh, uh, remark by Judah to Joseph is what convinces Joseph that his brother's hearts of stone have been converted divinely into flesh. Judah is embodying that Christ like character characterized by self sacrificial love, one which would lay its life down not just for a brother, but indeed someone who might even be an enemy. And Self-sacrificial love is one of the purest hallmarks of the regenerated man. They're proven worthy in Joseph's eyes, not because they can atone for the grave sin they committed against him. For no blood could ever be shed enough that would uh, uh, atone for that all those many years. No, they offer instead the greatest sacrifice they could imagine, they could offer. Nothing else but their very lives, a living sacrifice in this ruler's service. Yeah, they have passed uh, Joseph's test. And we shall soon see his response, but I want us to consider for a moment and and, and ponder momentarily uh, what is being set before us. I ask you this morning a question, maybe a series of questions. Would you have passed this test? Would you have placed your life on the line for your brother or sister or friend? Would you have done it for an enemy? So high questions. It's, it's very something that perhaps we may not be able to answer right now. right? We, we have a thought of, yeah, probably, I, yeah, I mean, maybe. If I feel good, if I had my cup of coffee in the morning. Uh, but perhaps we should make this a little bit more down to earth for a second. Would you even inconvenience yourself for the sake of a friend or a brother or an enemy? Would you forsake your own pleasure, your own um, um, joy for a moment for the sake of someone else. Maybe it's in the giving of time or money to something that does not bring immediate uh, satisfaction or benefit. Right? It might be something um, simply just saying no to yourself and, and maybe folding the laundry for your spouse or taking the trash out. And I ask you to do not give yourself a, a pass too quickly. Uh, we are selfish people. We're often more uh, like the Judah of chapter 37 than we are the, chap- the Judah of chapter 44, right? Very, very quick and able to jump ship uh, if the need and opportunity arises. And like Judah, I say solemnly this morning that we will not be the ones to assess our heart, Right? Even though we're, I'm asking you to do so right now, to assess your, to assess your heart, ultimately, your assessment, your uh, what you think about your heart is not what fully matters. It's what that judge, right, either Egyptian or eternal, it's what his assessment is what really matters. And the only thing we can do in that moment is do exactly what Judah has done: is to, to approach the throne, bow down, prostrate ourselves before him, and say, have mercy and the promise is that if that is the case if you return to this throne repent in penitence and and a desire to 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 serve your life for the sake of this king the promise is that he will not reject you he will not say you're not good enough you're not good enough that's not the point that's exactly why you're, you're there. But I'm getting ahead of myself. He will not just reconcile you to himself. To, to God will not just reconcile you to be free from sin. But he will also restore you to life. To know him. And to be in relationship with him. And we see exactly this demonstrated for us in chapter 45 of, jo- of Joseph's response. The divine Uh, reconciliation that occurs. Verse 1. So after this passionate plea for mercy, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. This is the moment we've been waiting for. Right? The moment uh, the dramatic reveal that Joseph, the, the Egyptian governor that, that has been terrorizing these brothers, is actually their brother, Joseph, who they sold back all those years ago. Again, just imagine the situation, uh, in the brother's situation at least. The man whom they sold into slavery, whose fate they have lied about for years to their father, is now the governor of Egypt. The governor who's accused them of treachery and malice, who has thrown them into jail, and up to mere moments ago was about to enslave their youngest brother because he framed the brother. And they know that he did. They're in his powerful hands, like a rat caught in a trap. And so understandably, they could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. Right? They're, they're, They're terrified. That, yeah, it's, it, you know, this, is not a, this is not a moment of relief for them. This is a moment of, oh yeah, this is judgment. We were right. Time to get what we had coming. But it's unfounded. Joseph was consumed all these years not with hatred towards them, a hatred that stirs up strife and derision and death, but rather he was fueled by a love that is to cover their sins against him, as Proverbs 10 tells us. He tells them not to, yeah, you better keep groveling and, and you know, throwing yourself down, and you better start throwing dust on your head and ripping your clothes. Keep, just, yeah, keep doing that for about you know, five minutes, and I'll, I'll let you get off easily. No, he, he, he tells them instantly to come to him. He draws them in close to himself. And he offers to them salvation from the famine covering the land, that, that destruction that threatens to snuff out Jacob and his family. The force that will wipe out the promised offspring in their eyes if they do not get food from this Egyptian. Or now, as I know, their brother. In a response paralleling the Abrahamic promise, Joseph states them, starting in verse 9, "'Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, "'Thus says your son Joseph, "'God has made me lord of all Egypt.' Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have, there I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father, Of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen, hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after this, his brothers talked with him. He offers a place where they will find rest, peace, and protection alongside him. He kisses them all. Firstly, Benjamin, it is the son of his mother after all. But then each and every single other brother, he grabs hold of them, embraces them, and forgives them. It's a beautiful sight. And before they leave to retrieve Jacob, not only is Joseph uh, telling them that yeah, I will provide for you. You will have no want. You have no need. I know exactly what you need. Just go and get, your, go get, you know, go get our father. He's, that's not enough, right? He then, he bestows a final gift. Where it says in scripture that to all of them, he gave each man changes of raiment, changes of clothes. He gives them a robe. And they who tore his his beloved robe and sold him to slavery, he's now giving them their, he's giving them royal robes and saying, guess what? I forgive you. But there's still one thing they must do. They may have confessed to him. They, must, they may have begged for mercy to him, but they have not confessed their sin completely. Because when they go to their father and their father asks, well, how is it that Joseph is the head of Egypt. Uh, Well, I thought he was killed by an animal. What's going on there, right? They're going to have to tell him the whole story. He tells them not to quarrel on the way. Uh, Verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. Would you believe it? And he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. Egypt. And his heart, and, and Jacob's heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Notice the name change. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. The son's alive. My life is revived. And so but at the end of all this, we'll see you next week. Jacob and his family are saved. Right? They don't die, they don't perish in the famine. But I want to return a real moment for back to this room currently. With another question. Or with another thought, rather. If there is any doubt in your mind of how God receives a repentant sinner. Take special note of this, of what Joseph has done to his brothers. Because this is not just how Joseph reconciles himself to his brothers. This is also how Christ reconciles us to himself. Right? Christ, Jesus is not some stoic, stone-faced, uh, statue-like, sterile God that... Uh, stands outside of our suffering and just wags his head and says, no, you deserve this. You deserve this groveling. You deserve this suffering that you're being placed in because you're a sinner. No, he passionately, and, and he embraces them. They repent and they say, we have no defense. We can only entrust ourselves to your mercy. And he says, come near to me. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. This is Christ speaking. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He does not condemn us in our sin but declares that he alone has the power to forgive our sin. Given that we come to him in faith even if that faith is as small as a mustard seed. Even if we don't really fully, completely, 100% trust it. I don't think any of us in here would say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Every single second of every single day, I, I just know that me and God are good. Like we, he's gonna forgive me, like we're good, we're great. And that's not where the parallels to Joseph end. God has made Christ the Lord of not just of Egypt, not just of Israel, not just of Jerusalem, but of the entire universe, of all of creation. He said Christ himself says that. We will dwell under his wings, his pinions, as a, as a mother hen with, with her children, protecting us. He promises that we shall have no want for food and drink, Out in Matthew 6. That we need not worry about even our bodies, for our heavenly Father knows exactly what we truly need. And he places upon us his robe of righteousness, Removing our filthy rags and placing his beautiful ones upon us. And we didn't earn it. All this is promised to us, and he says that neither death nor life, nor angels, or rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. Nothing in this any existence will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how Christ reconciles us. Not as a a, uh, a bipolar Egyptian governor, but as a merciful and loving older brother. And so the narrative this morning is not just about Joseph and his brothers. Right? It, is actually, it is also a shadow of the future fulfillment of the serpent crusher of Christ and his brothers, of God and his people. This is the divine reconciliation, a glorious restoration that we find within these verses. And although this is beautiful, this is, this is, we could stay here all day. I'm sure the question lingers because I've had many conversations in the past week that have proven this to me. Okay cool. Yeah, God loves us. Got it. But what of evil and the sins that we did commit? Are you just saying that there's no, like that, that sin is just wiped away, right? Oh, good. Don't worry about it. Sin's not a big problem. right? What, what about the evil that the brothers had done? What of the evil that we have done? How can God forgive us of this? right because it's easy to sit in our minds and say yes god will forgive me if i repent but but it is often the case that we do not see him as a loving brother or a love or as god the loving father but as a again as this as this judge who's standing above us wagging his head and saying i'm so disappointed in you coming crawling back to me again and again so what of evil? What of, what of the sin that we've committed? You may have noticed that I skipped a few verses. I've had to skip many. We would be here for four hours if I did the entire chapters. But return again to verse 4 of chapter 45. Four verses. So, what of evil? So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph whom you sold in Egypt. And now, do do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So, in conclusion, Therefore, it was not you who sent me in the final diocese, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler of all the land of Egypt. And then he goes forward to proclaim the promises that he will give to his brothers if they would return with their father. Joseph does not deny them and say, yeah, you guys yeah, water under the bridge, right? Yeah, you <laughs> sold me into slavery and all that. That's, that wasn't great, but, and, and I ended up in jail, and um, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't the best time necessarily. He, he does not wipe away their sin, but he shows them, because they are now not only awakened in the conscience, but also redeemed in their heart, right? They've been converted. He shows them the reality of what has happened. He has shown them a, a perspective that reframes everything, and is also the basis by which he can forgive them. Right? Uh, He's not not saying, yeah, you guys were just like little robots that God winded up and then just kind of let go, and then, you know, God wanted to sell me into slavery. No, he's not saying that they were coerced into selling him into slavery. Right? They had a free hand. They chose that willingly. They deliberated on it. They were like, should we, like, kill him? No, maybe not that. Maybe we should maybe we should just like leave him in the pit. Let's just throw them in the pit. We'll figure it out later, right? Let's, let's, think, let's mull it over. Let's get a good night's sleep, get a good breakfast in the morning, then we'll come back and decide what, what to do with him, right? This was freely of their, their volition. They, they chose this. In the temporary sense. They believed it was good to do so, right? That's, that's, that's the, that is the, um, the allure of sin is that just as Eve uh, was, was deceived in the garden, Sin is, the reason why we choose sin is because we think it's good in some way or somehow. Maybe it benefits us. Maybe it's just pleasurable. Maybe it's just something that kind of helps us out here or there, right? No matter what, at the root of it, when you get down to the brass tacks, it's because we think it's kind of, it's, it's, it looks good to the sight. And so, they, so, again, Joseph is not saying, yeah, you guys are, 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 are let off the hook for your sin right? Paul talks about this in the book of Romans, right? Oh, yeah. I'll get to that reptile. But, that all being said, even, yes, God, they have committed this sin, they were the ones who chose this. He's also saying not only that, not only did you sell me to sin, right, or sell me into slavery, but in that action of you selling me into slavery, it was God's action in that was sending me to Egypt, So ultimately, in in, in eternity, in in the eyes of of something that we really can't even conceive, it's something beyond us, Joseph is is comforting his brothers. Not with a, a lesson in theology, but by saying, no, this was for your good and my good. Your sin was used by God to bring about salvation for us. I think of Acts, the book of Acts, when the apostles say that uh, it was, uh, I'm going to butcher the verse, but uh, the men who put Christ on the cross, right? they, they were the ones who crucified Christ, but it was God's determination, God's will for that to happen. Mysteriously. And so because of this, all things considered. Joseph is saying all this to encourage and comfort his brothers, not with something that's like, man, I don't understand that. That's that's crazy. He's not asking them to understand it necessarily. He's just saying, this is the truth. God willed this to happen in some sense for our good. Something that you didn't even couldn't imagine would have happened. He's pointing them to the sovereign, divine ordination of God. As um, Donald Gray Barnhouse, a a pastor um, uh, from the same time as Tolkien, I think also in Philadelphia. I don't know know what it is with the Philadelphia pastors these past two weeks. uh, But he stated that Joseph saw the hand of God overruling the designs of his brothers. And from that consideration, he not only readily forgave them, but entreated them not to be grieved or angry with themselves since whatever had been their intentions, God had used their misdeeds to accomplish His own gracious purposes. So no matter what sin they, they intended to commit, God was using it, even their evil, for good. The entire book of Genesis closes with with a similar thought when Joseph again tells his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Do we ever think about life in this way? Do do you ever like, I mean, yes, you may say, yeah, yeah, and yeah, God's sovereign, that's cool, right? I can assent to that, maybe but do we ever think about the fact that it is our loving Father who is actually um, sort of uh, enjoying the creation by working in midst and through and in all of it? Because if you do, if you consider that for a moment, it should not fill you with dread. It should not fill you with terror if you're in Christ, but actually immense and, and, and unimaginable comfort. And no, you're not going to think about it. You're not going to be sitting there like, man, I just got, uh, you know, my car's totaled. Uh, you know, my kid's throwing up in the back seat. Man, God is so good. God is, yes, this was the will of God on my life that I, I go through this. Obviously not. Obviously not. But consider, if you will, how the Lord is providing for you. If you're still breathing this morning, I say that you have to consider this. You have to consider that that God is the one who is who is uh, uh, working in the midst of the sin and the suffering of your life to bring about, if you are in Christ, good for you. <laughs> yeah, you know, hindsight is 20-20, I admit. Yeah, um, and, and you know, in in when when your car is totaled and the kids are throwing up and and you know you you didn't eat your favorite bowl of bran flakes this morning uh, that you're just going that's just going to be your basic assumption right but that doesn't mean you to neglect it that doesn't mean you just say yeah, whatever no you should desire to view the world in, in 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 a way that is constantly being fueled by the lord's hand of all of life he's not just here in this you know dank and kind of uh, warm uh, cafeteria. He's not just, you know, in your prayer time or even in the book. He's all there. He's on all, all his places, obviously. But in every second of every moment of your entire life, God is there. And so the application is not to paint a smile on your face, right? Plastering platitudes and. Uh, you know, uh, swallowing your know, scripture pills of oh, God is so good, man. All the time God is good. Right? That's not that's not the application. That's not what I'm that's not what, what, what prov- that's not what it means to consider the Lord's providence. No, the, the application is that even in in, in the midst of suffering. When everything is falling apart and you do not know which way is up, you cannot see the light, you are hopeless, and you think, I'm going to die in some way. Right? If that suffering is natural or or demonic or, or what have you. The application is in that moment to remind yourself that God is still using even this. This moment is not wasted. Yes, the song that's being sung is, is disharmonious with what is good. right? The evil one is, has introduced, uh, or you yourself have joined in the song that, that Satan is singing. Even that is being used for good. Be jot and tittle of your life is written within the tome of God. He sees it all. He knows it all. He enjoys it all. <laughs> Sometimes. He guides it all as a masterful uh, composer uh, conducts his symphony. Weaving it in. Knowing full well, oh yeah, this is the point. Yep, that's when uh, that's when the sin's introduced. Yep, I remember that. Mm-hmm. Alright, jazz chord time. Boom. Okay. So, I said it recently, um, I think it was A.W. Pink who may have said this, but every, uh, the quote goes this way, God foresaw your every sin. He knows every single moment of your entire life where you will betray him, where you will deny him, where you will not love him as, as you should because it is, it is your good, it is good for you to do so, not just because it's good for you to do so, but anyway. Um, he foresees all of this. And yet, he still loves you. This is a father loves his child. That is, that is the, the comfort. That is what, uh, you know, Joseph's reframing of the situation to his brothers is not to, to again, to, to produce some high and heavy concept that they should just kind of leave it to the pastors and to the, to the people who, you know, waste money on books but rather to comfort them and say, listen, your sin was used for your good. Not that it was good, or that you are, you are given the pass for it, but even that was not a moment where God said, according to plan. Beloved, we shall see that no theme may be played that has not its ultimate... Utmost source in God, the ultimate creator. No one can change the promise and hope of Christ Jesus. Right? The offer of reconciliation He gives will not be changed. They are His terms, not ours. And any attempt to do so will only bring about His glory quicker, in a sense, and our joy and the devising of things more wonderful which we ourselves cannot even fathom nor imagine. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for our brother Christ, the one who calls us to Himself passionately and endearingly to turn from our sin and to come to Him. Lord Joseph is not the hero of the story, nor really is Judah. And we aren't either. But it's your Son. It is your Son, you who who have kept us to this very moment, who's been in our corner every step of the way, who even when the, the world is burning down and, and it seems like the, the, it's all ending, you're unfazed. And you remind us that it's not ending. It's only beginning. Show us Christ this morning, Father. Let me pray. Amen.